And welcome to the 31st episode of the very unofficial AICP Study Guide Podcast. I am Jonathan Miller, and thank you so much for joining. So, big announcement. Uh, If you haven't seen already on Instagram, we have officially hit over 10,000 downloads. I'm like, I'm just seriously amazed. Uh, Sincerely, I cannot say it enough. Thank you to everyone who tunes in. So, as a thank you, uh, I want to buy someone the Test Yourself Bundle from Planning Certification AICP Exam Prep. That is four ebooks, two practice tests, and five practice quizzes to make sure you pass the exam. If you want more details on what that is exactly, you can go to their website at AICPExam.com. I wasn't sure exactly how to figure out who, uh, so if you go to the podcast website, that's the very unofficial AICP study guide podcast.com, uh, complicated, I know, uh, there'll be a link to a little form. It's really just the name and email, so I can make sure that uh, you get it, obviously, uh, and a very short question for a very short response uh, to... What does an AICP certification mean to you? Uh, Filling it out does not, I repeat, does not sign you up for any emails or anything. And I don't need a super long response either, Uh, just a sentence or two on what it would mean to you. Uh, The opportunity to make more money, uh, legitimizing your role in the profession, boosting stature to more directly impact the direction of the profession, shits and giggles, whatever. Uh, I'll leave it open until the end of July to make sure that everyone has time to fill it out if they want to. So get on, get on to it. Anyways, for your friendly deadline reminder, you still have about 82 days or until October 4th for the application for the exam part. So you have time, but seriously, just get it out of the way now and be done with it. Last week, we talked about the Standard Acts. Standard State Zoning Enabling Act in 1924 and the Standard City Planning Enabling Act in 1928. Those two acts really set up states and cities with the power to engage in zoning and planning, but there were definitely some court cases along the way to set the stage too. And that is where we are headed today. We're going to cover three court cases that kicked off the rulings on zoning and what it can and can't do. Uh, This is just the beginning, of course, but let's see how it goes. To start, we head out west to the City of Angels and Brickyards for the 1915 case Hatchek v. Sebastian. So... Here's the setup for the case. In a tale as old as time, there was a councilman, Josias, uh, Jerry, Andrews, who had real estate interests, of course. Uh, His real estate interests were in attractive land that would become a neighborhood known as Victoria Park. And this neighborhood was just a couple of blocks east of a district that contained brickyards. One of them owned by a guy named Hadichek. The process of brick making is, well, not very environmentally friendly. You have to fire the clay, that's shaped into bricks obviously, in a kiln, and these kilns were fueled by coal. So yeah, not fun for potential residents nearby. 
Anyways, in a display of very poor optics, Councilman Jerry Andrews proposed an ordinance that would prohibit the manufacture of bricks within an area that contained this brickyard that was near his properties in Victoria Park. The poor optics uh, didn't go unnoticed, obviously. The LA Times even commented that the brickyard, quote, happens to be in a district where Andrews now has large real estate investments, unquote. Regardless, the Los Angeles City Council passed the ordinance, but the mayor at the time vetoed it, of course. Uh, the city council then said touche and got together and passed the measure over the veto, making it a legit ordinance anyways. Now, Mr. Hadachek, being the staunch businessman that he was, said, I'm going to live by the businessman code of dealing with the government. It is better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. Uh, he didn't really say that, but he did continue to operate his brickyard, even though the ordinance prohibited it. Subsequently, Mr. Hadachek here was charged with violating a city ordinance, uh, the one prohibiting operating a brickyard. Uh, and was arrested by Los Angeles Chief of Police Charles Sebastian. That is where the Sebastian comes from. Uh, Hadachek initially filed for habeas corpus, aka unlawful detainment, with the California Supreme Court. And what was his basis for that claim? Well, Hadachek claimed a few things here. One, he owned and operated this property, which contained lots of valuable clay, ripe for brick making, which was the whole reason that he bought the property, and this was before the land was even annexed into Los Angeles to begin with. Two, this ordinance would prevent the use of the property for the reason with which he bought it, and of course, uh, he would have to close his business. Three, his brick making business was as environmentally friendly as he could possibly make it, and so it couldn't be considered a nuisance. And four, it was a taking by violating the 14th Amendment and California Constitution, of course. So what was the result? Well, the California Supreme Court called bullshit and ruled in favor of Los Angeles, read as Sebastian, and said that Hadachek's business was one that could be regulated. They also said that acquiring the property and opening the business before the ordinance was irrelevant, and they also considered the numerous affidavits talking about how his business was uh, very much polluting uh, to show that it was in fact a nuisance. So Hadachek did what any reasonable person who loses a court case does and appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that didn't help. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously, by the way, that the ordinance prohibiting brickyards was a legit use of police powers, and that since Hadachek could still take clay from the property to a brickyard in a different location, the ordinance did not deny him the use of the property. Score one for legit police powers and ordinances that are not takings. Next, let's travel east to Appalachia, uh, specifically coal country in Pennsylvania. Yes, coal exists outside of West Virginia. Uh, we're going to go there to talk about what happened in the 1922 case, Pennsylvania Coal Company v. Mahan. So, what is the background here? Well, once upon a time, a coal company, let's call them Pennsylvania Coal Company, owned a bunch of land, but they're a mining company, obviously, so they don't really have a lot of use for the surface parts of the land that they own. 
Being resourceful, this company in 1878 decides to sell the surface rights uh, of their property to someone, let's call them Mahone. Uh, now keep in mind, this is just the surface rights. Pennsylvania Coal Company capped all of the subterranean rights to the property so that they could keep mining it. Uh, now, Mr. Mahone uh, here he didn't think this through very well because when he bought the surface rights, he also agreed to assume all of the liabilities that came with living on top of land that was being mined. As you might assume, living on top of a mine had, you know, some drawbacks. But in 1921, potential relief appeared when Pennsylvania passed the Kohler Act. And the Kohler Act said, you are not allowed to mine coal if it will affect a structure used for human habitation. So, when Pennsylvania Coal Company went to Mahone and said, hey buddy, we're gonna mine directly underneath you now. Mahone said, oh no you won't. And then went off and sued them in the Court of Common Pleas for an injunction. Now, this is a good time to explain where Pennsylvania coal was coming from, since mining under the residence on its face is pretty clearly a violation of the Kohler Act. You see, previously to the Kohler Act, and this case of course, the state of Pennsylvania had viewed supports being left behind uh, as, let's call it, non-mineable. Basically, they say there's a large coal deposit under a house. Uh, logically, if you remove all of the coal, the surface ground and subsequent home will cave in. But if you leave some pillars of coal in place to support the surface land, the land won't cave in and all will be well. So what Pennsylvania's previous practice was, was to permit mining under residences because to avoid a nuisance, the mining companies would leave behind pillars so that the surface wouldn't be affected. Now, you can see where the disagreement comes from. Mahone says that the mining will disturb his residence, thus violating the Kohler Act, and Pennsylvania Coal Company says if the Kohler Act is applied in that manner, then you've basically rendered our mining rights useless, and you can't do that, and that's a taking. So how did it all pan out? Well, the initial court, the Court of Common Pleas, said, bullshit Mr. Mahone, applying the Kohler Act here is not a legitimate use of the police power, and is unconstitutional. Mahone appealed, obviously, they always do, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, oh no, Court of Common Pleas, the Kohler Act here is in fact legit, this is totally okay as a police power, and of course, granted an injunction against Pennsylvania Coal Company. Pennsylvania Coal Company then said, oh hell no, and appealed to the US Supreme Court who said, Pennsylvania Supreme Court, you better check yourself because this is in fact not a legit use of police power and here's why. It basically boils down to this. Prohibiting the mining under the house only serves like a little bit of a public purpose, but mostly it's really a private purpose. Saving the house from the impacts only really helps that one house, albeit it may happen in several places, but it's still really an isolated kind of thing. On the other hand, the extent of prohibiting the mining altogether is huge. And on top of all of that, surface rights owners agreed to the liabilities of being on top of a mine, and if we prevent the coal company from mining where they had both agreed they would mine, we're basically stripping rights from the mining rights owner 
because the value in coal only exists in the ability to mine it, obviously, and we're giving more rights to the surface rights owners, even though they didn't actually pay for those rights. The main takeaway here is that the Kohler Act went too far. Yes, you can regulate uses as it pertains to a public purpose, but a kind of public purpose does not justify the blanket prohibition of a use, especially when all of the value of the property is in that use. So when a regulation goes too far, it can constitute a taking. Now, on to the big daddy of them all, the mother of zoning cases, Euclid v. Ambler Realty. Uh, for this, we are headed to the metro area of my native city of Cleveland, though I grew up on the west side, not on the east side where Euclid is, and yes, east side and west side is very much a thing in Cleveland. Anyways, let's cover why it was a big one. I mean, we just talked about two cases that happened before Euclid, so why? Well, Euclid deals with zoning in general. Hadachek dealt with a one-off ordinance and Pennsylvania dealt with a legislative act. And while both of these dealt with regulating uses, they didn't really touch on zoning regulations like we know them today. And with that, let's set the stage. So in another tale as old as time, the village of Euclid, Ohio, an early suburb of Cleveland, was not unlike other early suburbs of cities in the early 1900s, or really even later suburbs. It was filled with the NIMBYs. And these NIMBYs, fearing the industrial expansion from Cleveland and wanting to, you know, preserve the character of the village, decided that coating the entire village in amber was not plausible. So they crafted up a zoning ordinance to determine what uses would and wouldn't be permitted and where these uses would and wouldn't be permitted. The amber thing was fake, by the way, just in case that wasn't clear. This early zoning ordinance was really pretty simple though. It carved up the village and contained only six zoning classifications, three height classifications, and four area classifications. These were all sort of overlaid with each other. Think of like a Venn diagram on steroids. This case, however, was really only concerned with the use districts. Now, the use districts were cumulative. For example, U1 uh, delineated every permitted use, right? It's pretty basic. U2, not the band, <laughs> uh, said everything in U1 is permitted plus, and then added a couple other things. U3 said everything in U2 plus, and then added a couple other things, etc., etc., etc. So no biggie, right? Wrong. Ambler, who owned 68 acres between a railroad to the north and Euclid Avenue to the south, said, this is garbage. You see, their property ended up falling within three different classifications, U2, U3, and U6 with U2, the most restrictive, being along Euclid Avenue, U3 right behind that, and U6 being everything else uh, behind that, closest to the railroad. Makes sense. Anyways, Ambler wasn't very fond of the restrictive nature of the U2 and U3 districts. Subsequently, they sued the village of Euclid on the basis that, because of the zoning code, because of the restrictive nature of the U2 and U3 districts, 
their property value was substantially reduced and that that deprived them of the use of their property without due process. It's always due process and takings. Regardless, the lower courts ruled that Ambler was correct. They said that since multiple districts crossed over their property, they were restricted in what could be built there and thus no reason for Ambler to obey the ordinance. The village of Euclid appealed and the US Supreme Court, they had a different opinion. They ruled that even though the village of Euclid was part of Metro Cleveland, it was its own jurisdiction with its own autonomy and that zoning was within the police powers because the zoning related to the public welfare. It also said that there was no violation of the 14th Amendment, read that as due process, because Ambler never proved that there was a reduction in property value, they only assumed that there was a reduction in property value, and Ambler failed to show that the zoning ordinance did not relate to the public welfare. Basically, they ruled that zoning regulations are constitutional on the basis that they provide for the public welfare, and that for a zoning to violate due process, it would have to be discriminatory and have no rational basis. Well, holy moly, three major court cases about the extent of police powers and regulations. Uh, for a quick recap, Hadachek v. Sebastian in 1915 ruled that regulations can regulate where land uses go, so long as the property retains some uh, value for use. Then in 1922, in Pennsylvania Coal Company v. Mahone, the courts ruled that yes, uses can be regulated, but if those regulations go too far, as in the reduction in value drastically exceeds the public benefit, then the regulation does constitute a taking and it is unconstitutional. Then in 1926, in the village of Euclid v. Amber Realty Company, the court said that zoning regulations do fall under the police powers of a government and that for a zoning to violate due process, it would have to be discriminatory and have no rational basis. And with that, case closed. Court is adjourned. Well, thanks again for joining me. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at the very unofficial AICP guide at gmail.com. I will do my best to help out if I can. Uh, this week, we did probably way too much in these three cases, but they are super important, so yeah. For those who tuned in last week, our question was, in what year were the Standard State Zoning Enabling Act and Standard City Planning Enabling Act passed? The answer there would be 1924 for the Standard State Zoning Enabling Act and 1928, four years later, for the Standard City Planning Enabling Act. If you want to play along this week, our question is, which of the three cases that we talked about today did the landowner claim a taking? As always, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use for podcasts, and feel free to sign up on the show's website so you can follow along with future episodes, help prepare for the exam, and supplement all of your other study regimens, and share this out with any planners you know, and don't forget to leave a review either. Uh, and remember to go to the podcast website and do the quick form to enter for the Test Yourself Bundle from Planning Certification. 
Don't overthink it, just what does AICP certification mean to you? Uh, to me, in short, it means advancing our profession to new levels. Tune in again next week as we go mobile, uh, that is automobile. Uh, we're going to get into some cars. Thanks again, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>